About 600 years before Jesus was born, a man by the name of Buddha came up with what he thought were some good ideas. He accumulated a following of people who agreed, and when he died, his followers created a religion around those ideas that is still in existence today. But Buddha arose from relative obscurity, and no one predicted his coming. There had been no prophetic declaration that he would be born. Then about 600 years after Jesus was born, another man came along, a man named Muhammad. He also came up with what he thought were some good ideas. And he drew followers around him who agreed, and when he died, his followers created a religion around those ideas that still exist today. But Muhammad arose from relative obscurity, and no one had predicted his coming either. There had been no prophetic declaration that he would be born. Now Buddha and Muhammad may have had some good ideas. But they didn't come with any credentials. They didn't come with any paperwork. They were mere mortals. And their good ideas might not be any better than some of the ideas some of you could come up with. They didn't arrive on the scene with any validation from heaven. There was no stamp of approval of authenticity from God on either of these men. In contrast, when Jesus was born, His coming had been preceded by 2,000 years of predictive prophecies, prophecies that identified where He would be born, where and how He would live, how He would die, and rise again. And there are at least 300 of these recorded prophecies. And the most profound one of all is our text for this morning, Isaiah 53, written over 700 years before the suffering of Jesus, Isaiah's predictions are so specific that no mortal man could have written or fulfilled them. I consider Isaiah 53 to be the most important text in the Old Testament, the most important chapter in the Old Testament. And there's no doubt in any rational mind that it whispers the name of Jesus. Even the Targum, the Targum is the Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. Even the Targum is clear that Isaiah's prophecy here is referring to the Messiah. The prophet's words so accurately reveal the person and the passion of Jesus that no one, no one with normal capacity for thought could conclude otherwise. And this passage, like so many others, that we have considered since the beginning of the new year, this passage is indisputable evidence of the divine authorship of the Bible and the deity of Jesus. Now, I want to begin this morning by inviting Darlene Wallace to join me up here on the platform. Darlene is a very faithful servant in our ministry. Virtually every weekend she is down front here ministering, ministering to our deaf and our hearing-impaired folks, and uh, she is one of the best signers 
I'll even say the best signer I have ever seen. Giving you a lot to live up to here, Darlene. (laughs) I've asked Darlene to sign the Scripture as I read it for you this morning. So you listen to me, but, but you watch Darlene. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised, and we esteemed Him not. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, for He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of My people He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the rich. In his death, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many. Because he poured out his life unto death, he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Well, now that we've heard the name of Jesus whispered, now that we've heard the name of Jesus whispered in our text, we're ready to see him as the suffering servant. And I want you to look first at his introduction in verse 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And I understand this, but I have to admit it disappoints me just a little. Are you like me? I like to go to the live Easter pageants. I like to go to the religious-themed movies that have someone playing Jesus that looks like he works out. (laughs) Someone with the physical appearance of Charlton Heston or Jim Caviezel. That's what I'm talking about. I tell you, it was really hard for me to watch Max von Sydow as Jesus in the greatest story ever told. Go ahead and cast the guy as the Pope, but not as Jesus, please. 
I used to love going to Southeast Christian Church in Louisville for their annual Easter pageant because Jefferson Moore, for years, played Jesus in the pageant. Tall, dark, handsome Jefferson Moore with a six-pack. <laughs> Not like Max von Sydow's two-liter. Well, according to Isaiah, Jesus was not attractive or desirous in appearance. Doesn't sound very much like he could be a Christopher Reeves stand-in for the Superman series. So should that really bother us? I think it only does if we've been seduced and brainwashed by the Hollywood culture. I wonder why it is that people defer to those who are more attractive, more desirous. It's kind of culture-wide. It's been proven over and over again by hidden camera documentaries. And you know, you never see a plain Jane network newscaster, do you? You don't ever see a plain Jane actor in a major movie. And I guarantee you, it'll be a chilly day in purgatory before you see The Bachelor or The Bachelorette without an extreme makeover. So this morning, I wonder, I wonder if we could correct our thinking about how we value people today. Here's a fact. Most of us are ordinary looking. So what? So what? Our Lord was average. He didn't stand out in a crowd. He was not a head-turner. He was a heart-turner. And He remakes us from the inside out. His Lordship produces inner beauty, inner comeliness, inner attractiveness, and that's where our focus ought to be. God does not accommodate our American value system where the physical appearance of Jesus is concerned. In fact, He indicts our shallow assessment of people's worth based on their appearance. Well, that's how He's introduced. Take a look at His rejection in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men like one from whom men hide their faces, and we esteemed him not. So why did Jesus get such a negative response from some people in his own day and time? Well, I would imagine it's the very same reason why Jesus gets rejection from some people today. First of all, because of his words. You see that in verse 1 of the text. Look at this. Who has believed our message? Now, that is a rhetorical question that indicates the message of Jesus would not be popular. He spoke in words, he spoke in ways that were radically different. He spoke with authority. And so much of what Jesus said cut across what were the accepted behavioral norms. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who abuse you. He said, take up your cross and follow me. He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, with what you'll be clothed. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Jesus said, you've heard, you've heard it said, do not murder, but 
I say if you harbor anger in your heart towards someone, you're in danger of hell. Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say if you look upon a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery with her already in your heart. And the people's assessment was, never a man has spoken like this man. And that was true. No one had spoken those kinds of things before Jesus arrived on the scene. And the only people who've spoken those kinds of things since he was here are people who are quoting him. But what was true then is true now. Because the ethics of Jesus are countercultural. Because of that, he is rejected by some. Because of his words, because of his words, even today. Listen, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Nope, that's intolerant. A man and a woman are to be joined in marriage. No way, that's narrow, that's unloving. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth, where they can be moth-eaten and dust-corrupted or stolen from you. In the words of the New Yorker, forget about it. All the church is interested in is money. You see? You see the words of Jesus still turn some people off. Well, he was also rejected in spite of his works. It's hard to believe, but it's true. His miraculous works were not enough. And so we also read in verse 1, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, once again, this is a rhetorical question. The word arm is a metaphor for power. God would reveal his power in the miracles of Jesus. But people wanted the benefits without the commitment. And he gave sight to the blind, and he cleansed lepers. And he healed the lame and even raised the dead. Still the people totally forgot about the impact of his miraculous works. And they later shouted, crucify him, crucify him, when he didn't give them what they wanted. It's just as true today. People who've seen God's power in Jesus, and they still reject him. I'm thinking right now of a woman who has personally experienced the grace of God in her life. She has seen His mighty works in the church for years. But in her 40s, she walked away from her faith. She walked away from her family because some flim-flam man came along and told her he thought she was beautiful. I'm thinking right now of a man who was forgiven by God. Marvelously saved, cleansed by Jesus, given a second chance by the law because of his conversion. And after his personal crisis passed, he walked away from the church with the excuse that he knows a hypocrite or two. Listen, no matter how you rationalize it, this constitutes a personal rejection of Jesus Christ. The Lord has bared His strong arm and revealed it, but He's still rejected by some. And Jesus was and Jesus is 
rejected not only because of his words, but in spite of his works. He's also rejected in spite of his witness. I, I consider verse 3 to be a very sad verse in this text. Like one from whom men hide their faces. In other words, people turned away from him then, and they turn away from him now because they're embarrassed by Jesus. They are ashamed of Jesus. He's like one from whom men hide their faces. Hmm. Calvin Miller tells the story of a little girl whose mother's face was hideously scarred. And as the little girl grew up and she made friends and she gained her own identity, she became more ashamed of her mother's appearance. And so gradually she found ways to avoid being with her mother in public. Well, eventually she became an adult, she married, she moved to another town, and her lonely mother suffered alone in poverty. The daughter continued to ignore her, even in her destitute circumstances. One day during an obligatory visit, the daughter was going through some of her mother's things, and she found an old scrapbook, and she noticed an old newspaper article that told about a terrible fire that swept through their home when she was a baby. Her mother had rushed upstairs, scooped her up in her arms, and ran back out, sustaining third-degree burns on her face. The daughter learned the truth about her mother's injuries. Her mother's horrific scars were the result of saving her life. Deep shame filled her heart. She went to her mother. She embraced her mother. She cradled her mother's now beautiful face in her hands, and she tearfully poured out her gratitude for what her mother had done for her. And a new love controlled their relationship from that day on. If we realize all Jesus has done for us, we will not turn away from Him we will not be ashamed of Him, but because we know what He suffered for us, what He suffered in our place, we'll not turn away from Him because we know that His scars, His scars are for us, and still we'll respond to Him in deep gratitude and love. Isaiah 53 also talks about the suffering servant's humiliation beginning in verse 4. Surely He took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows, He was pierced. He was crushed. Our punishment was upon Him. By His wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave. Now this is a hard section to handle, not theologically, but personally. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and the purpose of His suffering was to make our forgiveness possible. The contusions and the lacerations and the penetrations and the perforations and the incisions, they were for me, they were for you. Watch. Israel, Adonai, 
That is what you call <clears throat> atonement. And it will change a person's heart like nothing else when you truly realize Jesus suffered in your place. He took your punishment. The incomparable power 
of atonement to change someone's heart was impressed on me one day a few years back. When our son was nine or ten years old, he got into telling lies. Well, there were three spanking offenses in our home, willful disobedience, disrespectful speech, and lying. And the hardest spanking was for lying. But Kyle got his growth early. And what can I say? The boy had a high threshold for pain. I spanked him hard more than once for lying, and it was not working. So finally I took him back to his bedroom, and I told him that I felt like, as his father, I was failing to teach him the importance of the truth. So I handed him the rod, I pulled up my shirt, and I told him that I wanted him to hit me on the back as hard as he could. Ten times. Well, that broke him. How that boy cried. The penalty had to be paid, but I paid it for him. I took his punishment. That was the last time he lied. <laughs> Look at the suffering servant's exaltation beginning in verse 10. Yet, yet is such an important word, isn't it, in Scripture? Yet? <laughs> yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. And the will of the Lord will prosper. After the suffering, he will see the light of life and be satisfied my righteous servant will justify many. Dr. Walter Wilson tells about a revival he held where a woman came up after the service to explain to him that she wanted to become a Christian, but she just couldn't believe that God would forgive her and accept her. So he asked her if she knew any scriptures. She, she said, oh, yes, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only forgotten son. Well, Wilson was a little taken aback by her distortion of the text, but he thoughtfully responded, you know why God forgot His Son, don't you? She said, no. He replied, He forgot His Son because He wanted to remember you. He wants us to be His children. He wants us to be His offspring. And this is what makes the will of the Lord prosper. His will is that not one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so what makes the will of the Lord prosper? It is what His suffering servant did on the scourging block on Calvary's cross. And because Jesus was a righteous, suffering servant, He will justify many. That means He will make it just as if I never sinned. Well, 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah told us what was going to happen 
in graphic detail. The Messiah was going to be more than an ordinary teacher. The Christian faith is not based on good ideas. It's based on prophecy. It's based on historical reality. The Savior was sent to suffer and die for our sins. Our Creator, our Father, could not bear for us to suffer the consequences of our sin and be eternally separated from His presence. So God declared it through Isaiah centuries in advance. So we would know, we would know that Jesus' death was not an accident. It was intentional. And God's plan calls for a decision on our part. In the book of Acts, chapter 8, we're told of an Ethiopian who was riding along in his chariot, reading from Isaiah 53, when the Spirit of God directed a Christian named Philip to approach him. And the Ethiopian invited Philip to come up in his chariot and explain the words he was reading from Isaiah 53, but he did not understand. They were the words from our text today. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And the Ethiopian asked, is, is the prophet speaking of himself or someone else? And so starting from that very scripture, Philip the evangelist began telling him about Jesus. And we don't know what all he said. But in Acts chapter 8, verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the treasurer said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And they went down into the water and came up out of the water. The message about Jesus was so powerful that this Ethiopian could not wait. He was not going to wait to make Jesus his Savior and Lord. He wasn't going to wait until he got to Egypt, and he wasn't going to turn around and go back to Jerusalem. He was ready right then and there, and with urgency, he made his decision for Christ.